Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. It's really good to try to sell starting on day one. That's probably, in my opinion, the best way to validate an idea, a B2B idea, is to try and go sell it. And by sell it, I mean literally go get money for like pre-committed customers. So it really de-risks a huge component of, I think, why these types of businesses fail, which is they just aren't able to even identify, reach, and successfully convert buyers. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Before we jump in, I have a quick community announcement. We're taking a short break from releasing episodes during the winter holidays. We will be back on January 3rd, and we'll be sharing a few of our favorite sessions from ELC Annual, our conference that happened in the fall. We also have some exciting conversations to share. John Alspa, former CTO at Etsy, Bavini Sineggi, VP of Product Engineering at Cruise, and Ryan Graciano, co-founder and CTO at Credit Karma, are all joining us in the new year. Plus, there is a ton of in-real-life community activities in the works, so make sure that you sign up at elc.community so you don't miss out on all of the exciting updates we have to come. Now... Welcome to a special episode of Engineering Founders. If you haven't heard yet, this is our new show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. Should you build B2C or B2B? What about a top-down or a bottoms-up sales strategy? How do you think about pricing? These are many of the dilemmas that early founders face in the early stages. In this episode, we have a conversation with Abhi Noda to discuss his experiences co-founding DX and Pullpanda. We examine the differences and trade-offs behind building for consumer versus B2B, the best way to validate a B2B idea, considerations to help you develop your early pricing strategy, plus a ton of great insights on early sales and product adoption strategies. About Abi. Prior to founding DX, Abi was the CEO and founder of Pullpanda, a developer productivity tool acquired by GitHub in 2019. At GitHub, he led research collaborations with Dr. Nicole Forsgren, McKinsey, and Microsoft Research, which was the impetus for founding DX. About DX, DX is the world's first developer experience management platform, helping organizations measure and improve top drivers of developer productivity and engagement. DX is designed by leading software engineering researchers, providing science-backed metrics, workflows, and education that empower teams to improve. Enjoy this special episode of Engineering Founders with Abhi Noda. Welcome to Engineering Founders, Abhi. It's great to have you here to the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, excited to be here. We have a lot of questions that we want to get into about you, your story, everything going on at DX, and, and some of the lessons that you've learned. Let's first start off with your origin story. So give us a little more information behind your founder journey and the origin story behind DX. Yeah, it's kind of a long origin story. 
which is fun, I think, because I've been really trying to solve this problem for a very long time. And it really began, I think, in around 2013. I was a VP of engineering at a startup and managing a medium-sized team. And the CEO of the company came to me and said, hey, our leadership team is going to start reviewing metrics every month about how our departments are performing. Can you bring some metrics to those meetings? And that really sparked this journey of trying to figure out what is actually meaningful to measure in engineering. And moreover, what types of metrics work well with engineers? And really, the short version of the story is that I couldn't find anything that was meaningful to the business and also acceptable and legitimate to the engineers. And that kicked off this really five year journey where I set out to kind of solve this problem. And I started by attempting to solve it with my previous company called Pull Panda. Pull Panda primarily did this by trying to provide various types of like pull request analytics and Git metrics. Uh, that company was acquired by GitHub, and then at GitHub, I continued to work on this problem. I was put in charge of launching a new enterprise product there called GitHub Insights. In addition, I was focused on trying to measure engineering internally at GitHub to understand how we could ship faster. Again, I ran into the same problem where I couldn't really find anything that was effective at driving change and really identifying bottlenecks. And so after spending a couple of years at GitHub, I left to start DX to take another crack at this problem. What's interesting is like, you know, DX not being your first go around as a founder, I wanted to go all the way back to the first time you made a decision to start your own thing and to transition away from engineering leadership. So what was that moment like? And I don't know if this was Pull Panda or, or Butter CMS or, or some of the other ventures that you've jumped into, but what was that first moment like for you? That's a fun question because really I think I got into technology in the first place because of just kind of like a pure love of building products. And honestly, I think a lot of people get into technology because they just love building things. And along the way, you know, I got interested in other things like management. But really, I think throughout my career, my heart's always just been in building stuff. Really, the transition has come organically throughout my career. I think I actually started my first company right during college, but it wasn't in the engineering space at all. It was I kind of jumped onto this startup that was doing janitorial stuff, software. It's a very different space. But more recently, for example, with Pull Panda, it was really just driven by me as a manager running into problems that I thought I could build a solution for. And so it's very organic. It was just trying to really solve my own problems and then a stroke of luck that led to that turning into a business. So I think what's unique is we've, we've had a couple folks on, on the show so far. And what's unique is, is you've had a couple goes at, at starting your own company. And what's interesting is both Pullpan and DX are sort of in this, this similar sort of space. But the experience of both of those is, is very different. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the difference between your experience founding DX or founding Pullpanda or maybe just the differences in founding any of those ventures so far. Yeah, absolutely. They've been incredibly different. Pull Panda was really a side project. It was a side project that I hoped could maybe turn into something. And I think a lot of businesses start out that way. And I think a lot of, especially engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own company are tinkering with side projects that they hope could become, you know, revenue generating or even turn into full-time businesses. And so that was the origin story of Pull Panda. I actually got laid off of the job I was working at as a VP of engineering. And so it was, I had this month to kind of kill. So I was actually applying for jobs and I told myself, you know, I'm going to give this thing a shot. You know, I'm going to build the MVP. I'm just going to go heads down. I'm not going to start doubting myself. I just need to get this out into the world. I know someone will find it useful. 
you know, I had I had enough conviction. I was like, I know someone will find this useful. And again, I chalk it up to luck a little bit. But when I launched Pull Panda, I got some interest. Uh, actually, the first customer found it through SEO, which is kind of funny to think back because I wasn't focused on SEO at all. But you know, I got a few people coming inbound through like the Slack app directory and SEO. And then I just asked them, "Hey, like, would you be willing to pay for this?" And that's really how the business began. It started with just one or two customers that I was kind of just, you know, responding to their feature requests for and me asking them, would you pay for it? And they said yes. And then things kind of took off from there. There was no real big inflection point in the business from then on. It was just kind of, okay, the next customer, how do I optimize the signups? How do I get more signups? How do I get a little more attention? And, you know, Pull Panda kind of luckily struck a real chord and really got at a problem that was much more universal than I had anticipated and grew into a business. So very kind of organic. And of course, Pull Panda was also this self-serve bottoms up sort of business where people were just finding me, they were signing up, they were paying on their own. I had tens of thousands of users, thousands of companies using it. Uh, I would talk to some of these companies to provide support or do a little bit of sales. But really, the way the business operated, I could basically just sit back and just kind of the company just ran itself because it was all self-serve and bottoms up. DX is very different. DX is enterprise software. So we try to go sell to engineering leaders. There's two reasons why I decided to do things differently with DX. One was that I just saw the amount of money that was left on the table when I did Pull Panda with that bottoms up motion. So I saw other companies out there selling pretty similar services, but they were charging like, I'm not getting 100 times more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were getting customers. I was like, this is preposterous. With Pull Panda, I really didn't want to change the whole, like, I didn't want to change the business to become like an enterprise software company. It was just, it was just going so well. Customers were so happy. I didn't want to try to shake things up and change the kind of trajectory of the business. But especially having then gone to Microsoft or, or GitHub and kind of done some sales there myself, I just saw that there's an entirely different like economics to enterprise sales and enterprise software that I felt like a solution in this space would really be able to capitalize on if done well. Really to have a lot of impact in this category, in this space, I felt like taking that more top-down sales-driven approach was just needed in order to affect change. There's so many, I think, relatable notes of that experience. So you mentioned sort of the inspiration behind Pull Panda was being laid off, having a month off and, and giving something a go. I guess right now with the timing with what we're observing is a lot of different layoffs of different companies right now in the market. And so what's kind of interesting is I'm like thinking here, maybe this is the potential for people to that's the impetus for them to take the leap. Is there any words of encouragement you would give somebody who maybe has just experienced a layoff who maybe is toying with the idea of using this now this forced opportunity to jump in and try something new themselves? Yeah, you know, I mean, entrepreneurship is, it's hard to start businesses, it's hard to build a product and like find a market for it. But engineers are really, really smart people. I think one of the things that gets in our own way is that we're so analytical, and so rational that we tend to be a little bit pessimistic, and kind of self doubting, or doubting of our, you know, what we put out in the world. And so actually, the company I got laid off of the CEO of the company, he had this quote he shared with me. It was, you know, if you're an op- if you're a pessimist, you'll be right. If you're an optimist, you'll be rich. And I actually really <laughs> held on to that, you know, because I, I was always, I could, I can point out a problem with anything. I can point out a flaw in anything. And I think that gets in the way of 
you know, taking that leap of faith and just putting your head down and trying to do stuff. And as an engineer, I would look around and be like, these people starting companies, like they're not, I don't think they're smarter than me. You know, they just kind of do it. And so the advice would be that quote, you know, you kind of have to create this unconditional optimism in what you're doing and just give it a shot. You know, chances are if you take 10 shots, one of them is going to go in. That'd be my encouragement to someone in a similar position right now. As an unyielding optimist, I deeply resonate with everything you said there. I also wanted to call out, I think when a lot of people are assessing their career and analyzing their career, uh, I also really appreciated how you you illustrated the larger sort of Microsoft GitHub enterprise experience and how that completely changed the business strategy in which you were taking with your next venture. Uh, because I think as, as people are assessing their next career move, just to see the opportunity of how that can really equip you to build and structure your business in a really strategic and intentional way, I think is really interesting. Um, one thing I want to, to mention is, uh, I think, uh, if you ask a lot of successful entrepreneurs, and they will say, well, my success is maybe part of that is luck. But I would say that luck more likely to happen when you start trying out new things and, and put ideas into practice and come, luck will come along from time to time. But if you don't do that, it's not going to happen. Absolutely agreed. And I mean, I can relate to that because DX has taken far longer to get to a point where I was confident that it was a business than I anticipated. So let's talk a little bit about some of the strategies there because you'd mentioned really wrestling with the bottoms-up approach with Pull Panda, and then making an intentional choice to do a little bit more of an enterprise top-down model. Can you talk a little bit more about your experiences there and some of the trade-offs and just expand a little bit more? Because I think a lot of people in the early onset, they're probably either going from zero to one, just starting their leap or toying with an idea. Making the decision here is probably very foundational to this like early step to choose what they're going to do here. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the, the trade-offs in your experience making that sales decision. I've done quite a few of these kind of B2B startups. And I have a, this belief that it's really good to try to sell starting on day one. That's probably, in my opinion, the best way to validate an idea, a B2B idea, is to try and go sell it. And by sell it, I mean, literally go get money for like pre-committed customers. So what I've typically done is kind of said, hey, you know, here's the pitch. Would you like to be in the early adopter program, which costs this much six month commitment, you know, I, I create a real thing that they're they're buying and that they're getting and they're kind of committing to. This does a couple things. You know, one, it's a really good sanity check on whether your idea is valuable enough. But the problem is, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they go to their friends, they go to their network, and they start saying, hey, I'm thinking of building this idea, what do you think? Would this be valuable? And of course, people are trying to be encouraging. They're like, yeah, like, I think that sounds like a really good idea. That would be really valuable. But when it comes down to, okay, can you pay me for it? Right? That's, that's where the struggle is. And I think that's where so many side projects, you know, technically led businesses kind of hit a wall is that, okay, I, I built this thing but I'm having trouble getting people to pay for it. How you actually reach people to get to pay you is a separate problem, but really upfront, validating that you can get people to pay for it, that also solves other problems. That actually helps you think about really how to sell your idea, like how to position it, because that can be as important as the product itself. It also is a nice sanity check, like do you even know who you need to go and talk to to try to sell this, right? Who is your kind of target? How do different types of folks react to the idea? So it really de-risks a, a huge component of, I think, why these types of businesses fail, which is they just aren't able to even identify reach and successfully convert buyers. That's something I did with DX. As soon as I left GitHub before, really, I think I even started writing one line of code. I put together a deck, a sales deck, starting with kind of people in my network, but very quickly kind of started getting intros to other folks too. Started pre-selling 
DX. And it was really, you know, a problem statement, a solution, a concept of a solution, some fake mockups of the solution and a price and a commitment. I think, you know, in three weeks, I had well over a dozen companies, you know, I had thousands of dollars coming into our bank from these customers, you know, that told me, okay, I'm not crazy. And especially this was also not an established market. I wasn't kind of creating a better version of X or a spin of, you know, Y. This is a completely new idea, completely new approach to solving a problem. So I really needed to do that to make sure I wasn't crazy and just in love with my own idea that wouldn't work in the real world. Uh, does the fact that it's a new idea that doesn't have a lot of competition about, it's not about established, how do you contribute that to the fact that you were able to close pre-sale deals so quickly? There's definitely pros and cons to like going into, I don't know, they call it like blue ocean or a new category. I mean, the advantage is you really don't have direct competitors. So like if I were starting a new document editing tool, everyone would just be saying, well, we use Google Docs. Why in the world would we use this, right? With our tool, we didn't run into that as much, but we still had indirect competition. People were like, well, we do retros or, you know, we track, we use this data from Jira to understand how we're going to... So we, we still had indirect competition. So I think there's just different challenges. But I really think whether you're positioning against direct competition or indirect, you're still going to be able to have to articulate what you're offering, you know, uniquely provide. So I don't... I think it kind of balances out. You know, I don't think I would encourage someone or myself to like pursue one or the other. I think they just come with different challenges. If you go into a new space, you're going to really have to be able to articulate like why that thing needs to even exist in the world. Whereas if you're going against a competitor, you need to articulate why your solution is different or better. So I think it's pretty similar. You mentioned like some big aha moments about like identifying at, at Pulpanda competitors were charging 100x in a new net new category creation moment. Like, how do you even think about pricing for, I guess, a bottoms up or a top down approach for those different types of products? Yeah, I'm definitely not a pricing expert and I've been known to underprice things <laughs> consistently. Also, I think that's partly just being an engineer. Like, you just are kind of like, I could build this in a week. So, why, you know, how could you charge so much money? But Pull Panda, you know, the first customers who came in, I just asked them, hey, would you be willing to pay like 10 bucks a month? <laughs> and then I just started playing with the pricing and I would get an email here and there, hey, like, really like your pricing is this much or but people were converting and paying so i gave a talk at um microconf one year and i remember everyone just after they're like dude you got to raise your pricing so <laughs> i don't think i had it optimized but you know again pricing i think there's a few different ways to think about pricing you know one is like that roi conversation you know like if your product helps a company make money that tends to be a very easy conversation because if your product makes them more money than not using your product. And if, if their alternatives to not using your product are more complex and difficult, then clearly your product is just, the price is justified. Engineering tools is sometimes a very difficult space for pricing. Uh, I hear people joke all the time that like GitHub screwed everyone because their pricing is pretty low. And it kind of sets the bar for like what you know, developer tools pricing should be. But it's a similar thing, you know. So with both Pull Panda and DX, it's definitely being mindful of the other spend that companies have in engineering tools. So we have to face the reality that they pay, I don't know, like 20 bucks per seat for GitHub and maybe 15 bucks per seat for Jira. That's 
that's very cheap compared to like even like Salesforce. I think a seat in Salesforce is like a hundred dollars a month base. And then there's the ROI conversation, and there's also the buyer. So funny thing about DX, although I said I wanted to make it top down, when I started the business, I actually did start it bottoms up. You know, looking back, I don't know why I did that. And when we switched really to top down, it, the pricing conversation changed completely. When it was when it was bottoms up, people were telling us all the time, 14 bucks a month per user. You know, we already pay 14 bucks a month per user for this tool and this tool and this tool. It was that's kind of how people perceived our pricing. When we switched to top down and we're having conversations with VPEs, you know, we were talking about the ROI against things like attrition or the leverage of being able to improve efficiency across your organization by 5%. You know, what does that mean in terms of dollars? Or the conversation would be kind of like a build versus a buy conversation, right? And building is so expensive because, I mean, if you want to build anything internally, you need to hire an engineer. Okay, that's what, 200 grand by itself, they probably need like a designer and a PM. So it costs like a million bucks per year to build anything internally. And so if you're having a build burst buy conversation, that's I think another way to approach that pricing conversation. And at really big companies that buy enterprise tools, I think that's how they view it because the per seat model doesn't even make sense. Like if you have a hundred thousand employees, you're not thinking per seat. You're just thinking like if you're Microsoft, it's literally, you know, we have so many engineers we can build anything, but are we saving a lot of money by just buying this thing off the shelf? So it's been really interesting to kind of understand and learn about how the pricing problem really changes based on who the buyer is in the top-down versus bottoms-up model. And how do you find the right persona to pursue as customers? Yeah, that's a great question. With Pole Panda, I didn't ever really do that because it was so organic and inbound that I just, I never really had that problem. I mean, certainly if I really wanted to, like, had I not been acquired and wanted to 10x that business, I would have probably had to start asking that question. You know, I think a lot of companies don't always answer that question until they're quite mature sometimes. But with DX, it's been something that I've been very big on trying to figure out and be clear on just wanting clarity into that because it really I think the answer to that question is first of all there can be multiple like a product can have multiple buyers that you could build a business off of a very healthy business and so it's a matter sometimes of really analyzing the trade-offs between those different buyers in terms of you know budget is one you know there may be for example TPMs, right? Let's say you have a product and you're like, this would be great for TPMs. Well, then you go out and you find out, you know, TPMs don't have budget. Like their organizations don't have tools budgets. They just use the tools that engineering is already using. So that might be a problem if you're focused on that persona as the buyer. So for us, it's been very much, look, there are multiple options, but we need to pick one. Because as a startup, you just need to focus. And we need to pick one that makes the most sense for a business. And what you realize when you do that focusing kind of effort is that it really changes. Like when you focus on one persona and become very persona-driven, it changes everything. It changes your messaging. It changes your website. It changes your product dramatically. And that was actually advice I got from one of our investors and advisors early on. I was, we were kind of in this weird spot where we had traction, but we were still a little lost in terms of like, how do we scale this thing up? And I remember he said, look, you just have to pick one and decide. Because, and he said, look, most big categories, 
They have the bottoms up companies, the tops down, top down companies. They have companies selling to one persona, companies selling to other. Like they all can work, but you ultimately just have to pick and focus um, and then maybe expand. And of course, your question is kind of about buyer personas, but then you have to decouple that from the user personas because your buyer and end users, especially for enterprise software, are typically you know, different. Tell us a little bit more about that. Let's take an engineering tool. So your hypothetical top-down engineering tools sold to, let's say, a VPE or a CIO. And if we're talking about a productivity tool, the end users are the developers and front, you know, the teams. There's a tension there. There are things your buyer wants, but for your solution to really work, and in our case, the buyers are aligned with this, you need the end users to be really happy as well. In fact, you need end users to even adopt the tool, which is a problem at big companies, even with, even with internal tools. I talk to like developer productivity teams all the time that they're building all kinds of tools like CLI tools and build tools, and like they have problems getting their engineers and teams to adopt their internally built tools. To achieve that, you need to have a really good understanding of the end user personas. So you need something that aligns in terms of value proposition and product experience for your buyer. That's really important. They're paying the bill. But to be successful, you also need something that's going to be loved by a user base that's challenging to build great products for, which is developers and engineering managers, right? They're they're not going to put up with a subpar tool. They just won't. When you know how to build the tool, you definitely have a more discerning uh, discerning eye towards, towards the tools for sure. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. You were talking a little bit like the next sort of hurdle that you have to think about is like how does somebody, especially if it's a a top-down tool, how does then the end user actually adopt and use your tool? And you talked about some of the challenges that internally built tools, the challenges of adoption that they all already run into as well. So how do you determine how an organization is going to begin to use or adopt your product? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm, I, I want to give a little preamble, which is taking a step back. You know, when I think back to Pull Panda versus DX, again, like this top down versus bottoms up, you just deal with an entirely different set of problems. A question I asked myself was, did I want to sign up to deal with these types of problems? Like Pull Panda was kind of blissful. We had a product, people just came in and signed up and paid, and I didn't need to worry about really much else. I mean, there was support and optimizing the funnel, things like that. But you didn't have to worry about like adoption. It it just wasn't even really much of a concern. Adoption with enterprise software is really interesting. And of course, it'll depend so much on kind of what type of product you're building. But with DX, it's used by the entire organization. Uh, At least that's the hope, right? So when you think about how do you get adoption of a tool top-down across an organization, what you're really dealing with is a problem that if you've worked at a big company, you've probably seen up front. And and this is why I'm also grateful for my experience working at GitHub and Microsoft, because just some kind of exposure to some of these big company dynamics, I think, is really important so that you understand the reality of the customers' organizations. And so doing things at big companies is really hard. 
like doing anything. You know, I mean, if you've worked at a big company, there are program managers in charge of just running monthly meetings to get everyone to fill out a spreadsheet, right? <laughs> or a report. When we think about how do you roll out DX and get adoption at a large organization, we're looking at it through that lens. I'm thinking about, okay, when I was at GitHub, how do new initiatives happen? I mean, there was executive comms, there were program managers driving it, there was trainings and mandatory calendar invites. And, and again, remember, this is top down. So we are selling a engineering leader on a new solution, which involves adoption and process. So we so if you're an engineering leader, and you have a 1000 engineers, and you want to start a new initiative, what do you do? Well, you usually put someone in charge of it. And that person starts planning out a schedule, getting stakeholders involved, figuring out the communication that needs to go out. They need to figure out the training if needed. They need to figure out how to check in periodically to make sure things are still getting done that need to get done. And so that's how we've approached adoption. And that's if that sounds like a lot of work and maybe not fun, in some ways it is. It's like a lot of hair pulling, but it's also a fun problem to try to solve. I mean, it's not a product challenge. It's a customer success sort of challenge, but it's, you're still looking at a customer in an organization like this system, and you're kind of engineering this repeatable system to roll out a process and get a product adopted. Of course, if I did, what I described sounded really heavy, what we actually do isn't quite as heavy as that. But sometimes we really do think of it in that, like that heavily uh, in terms of what the process looks like. I really like the question you asked of, did I want to sign up and deal with these problems at the, the beginning? I guess when you asked yourself that question, what was the dilemma that you faced? Like when you're saying like, do I want to choose these class of problems or these class of problems? What were you weighing? Yeah, so if you build a bottoms up product, you have this problem where someone will sign up somewhere and you'll start making 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month. But that's not enough if you want to build like a really, I mean, actually it is enough depending on the type of business you want and depending on how big your market is. But I think for a lot of businesses, it doesn't quite cut it. You know, so do you want to be a company that has thousands of customers, but it's like a manager here, a manager there, a couple users here, a couple, or or are you trying to get your product to be used across a company or in whatever in the way you envision it, right? If you do the bottoms up approach, you're constantly running into this problem of like, and I felt this with Pull Panda, like you're in. But you don't feel like you're only in at like a part of the company. And as a result, your product may not be as sticky. You're not going to be able to charge as much money because those pockets, right, aren't the people who control the budget. Like you're selling to someone who's like convinced their manager to let them expense something on the corporate card each month for their team. And then you have to deal with how do you expand that? How do you deal with like the upsells? Companies like Atlassian have mastered this. Right, like Atlassian is all bottoms up, and they they have tremendous stories and strategies they share about how they run their company and how this is so effective. And you, you know, product led growth has been all the rage, kind of in at least in the Twitter sphere for the last <laughs> couple of years. But there's real challenges with that. I mean, there's a lot of companies that are bottoms up, but they're just have trouble actually generating money because that's hard. You have to learn how to convert people, expand, retain, and command the price. With top-down, you have a whole another set of challenges, right? You need salespeople. Like Atlassian kind of brags, they don't really have salespeople. They have like kind of support people who help their customers buy other products to help them. But if you're doing top-down, you need salespeople. You need people who can get in a room with a executive and sell them something and have that conversation. That's expensive and that's a grind, right? Um, you need to deal with this role, like this customer success problem, because it's not it's not like one team that's just 
using your tool and figuring it out on their own. You're dealing with an initiative and a rollout within an organization overseen by an executive, and you have to do that well, right? Uh, you have to deal with procurement. So it's really just these trade-offs. I think, I mean, to be honest, I think most engineers and first-time founders would probably prefer the like pull panda approach where mm-hmm. it's very passive. You build something people just love. You establish enough inbound to just grow the business and you don't have to hire salespeople. That was honestly pretty blissful. But again, if you want to make money, you know, DX is already making quite a bit more money than Pull Panda ever did. And granted, you need more people and a lot more kind of overhead to achieve that because, you know, a salesperson isn't cheap, but there, it's just a different, again, it's, I think you have to kind of play it to your strengths as well. When I did Pull Panda, I was, had no experience in enterprise, really software or sales. I had a little bit, but, but not a lot, not especially not in like the engineering space. And then when I worked at Microsoft, I learned a little bit of that or saw what was possible. So I just had this picture in my head of what that could look like. And I think that gave me the confidence to pursue that approach. So I don't think one's better than the other, really. Again, I think in any big space, there's both types of companies. There's the bottoms up company and there's the top down company and they can coexist. They can both be successful. There are also companies that are doing both. Um, they're doing the product that girl at the bottom up, but also they have self-assisted motion from focusing on the, the large enterprise. Absolutely. I love the idea of what problems do you want to choose because you will always have problems, but choose the ones that you want and then map that against your strengths and experience. I think that's a really good framework to think about the beginning portion. I have a, a follow-up question about the, the bottom up versus top down, but from a perspective, from the lens of conversation to investors, because not only the buyer, the user, but the investors also another um, important set of people when you talk to as a founder. So how, how do you make trade-offs or what's the differences between those two bottom uh, top-down pros when you have conversations with investors? It's very clear that investors, the different investors all had preconceived notions of, you know, based on, again, that initial vision of, what DX was going to be. It was very clear to me that investors had their own varying preconceived notions of whether DX was more like bottoms up or tops down or top top down and like who kind of the ICP was. Because I would have some investors who, for example, managed fairly small engineering teams themselves who were really like eager to kind of try out the tool. And that really kind of made me think, okay, they really see this as like a bottoms up thing. But then some of the investors were like, you're definitely enterprise sales, like your ACV, like you shouldn't be going after any customers that aren't going to pay you at least six figures. (laughs) I don't perceive that there is any preference from investors on one or the other. I think the advice I got from some who were particularly really, you know, understood the B2B SaaS space and particularly in developer tools well was this understanding that it was really important to be very focused in what we ultimately decided. And also to not get caught up in what other people are doing, you know, just because Linear has this incredible developer-driven bottoms-up funnel thing going on doesn't mean, I mean, they're doing great, obviously, as a company. But I remember talking to a couple investors early on who were like, you know, their ARR isn't that good. You know, like they're not making that much money. And so it was just a kind of a word of caution, right? To really think in terms of first principles about how you're going to approach this and choose what's best for you. I think that was really what I gained from investors was there was no right answer. And I think at the beginning of starting DX, I wasn't thinking about it in a pure way as much as I could have. And I learned that about six months in. 
I had a question going back to what we were talking about. You mentioned like part of the sales to at a more enterprise level is also this assumption that there's going to be adoption around it and, and support. How do you think about structuring the right forces to help incentivize or reduce the friction of product adoption at that more top-down approach? I mean, this is something we're still figuring out. And I mean, I, I've had conversations with some of our investors who are operators at billion-dollar B2B SaaS companies, and they've been like, look, we're still figuring it out too. <laughs> like, we're still figuring out why are people buying our product again? But <laughs> it's easy to get in your head about this. Like, for example, we've had that conversation. Like, so, okay, how do we make sure that people use this? And then we're like, wait a minute, these this executive just paid us thousands of dollars they want this implemented. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like we're not, we don't need to like backdoor get, we're not, we don't need to like gorilla our way into adoption. Like this executive bought this tool because they want these people to use it. They want it to impact their business. So our job is to be a partner to that buyer and help them accomplish that goal. And when we thought about the problem that way, that meant saying, hey, buyer, you know, you need to tell person X to do Y. We need you to find us a person who can do this for us. Imagine if you hired McKinsey, right? They would come in and tell you to do stuff and you would do it. Everyone would. So that's kind of the way we've tried to approach the problem. But unfortunately, we're not McKinsey. And the buyer sometimes is really busy and kind of disappears. And so there's not a single track strategy for this. You know, for us, there's kind of like the ideal path. For us, the ideal path is having this super engaged buyer who is like, tell me what you need. We'll put 20 TPMs on this. You know, we'll give you 20 TPM, like our entire TPM org. We've had customers that do that. Then we have the customers who like, we're not even in touch with the buyer anymore. <laughs> and we're not, we don't really have a good way to like, re we don't want to just bother them be like, hey, you want to chat? So we do kind of come at it more from like a grassroots. It's like, okay, let's, we, you know what we, or what if our buyer leaves the company? So we need to go in and basically like reestablish new champions and things. And having talked to other enterprise SaaS companies, this is, what you do. And it's really, I think, especially as like engineers, this, like you literally have to go play big company politics from the outside in. And again, having worked at Microsoft, people were trying to launch initiatives all the time from all different parts of the organization. And they had to get on people's calendars. They had to nag people. They had to kind of play politics a little bit and posture. And like, I mean, that all sounds probably really unsexy to people who <laughs> want to just build products, but that's how we think about this problem. You know, being this very top, this tool that's really sold typically to the VPE, but a VPE, I mean, they, they're they not looking to administer or oversee anything. So they buy it, but then we need to make it happen. And that involves sometimes making asks. That involves trying to be like McKinsey, like come in and say, this is how you do it. Like you bought our product to accomplish X. This is what you need to do. And that can require time allocated by the customer. That was something we were really worried about too initially. It was, oh my gosh, like we need to ask people to do stuff. You know, that feels really weird because you sold them a product and now like you're making them do work, but that's implementation, <laughs> right? So anyways, I'm a little scattered here, but those are some of the ways we really think about this problem and approach it. Can you share a bit more about that process of closing deals, now getting to the implementation stage, and you start asking them to do things? H how does that play out? Is that the expecting you set up early on? Or what if you get uh, resistance from their internal teams? Because we, we're graduates of enterprise software too, and we were facing some of the problems. 
It does start with the sales process. If you're selling enterprise software, part of your ideal buyer needs to be, is it a person who can actually implement the thing or has the authority to make it happen? It definitely starts with sales. And we have definitely thought about our ideal buyer personas and sales journey with respect to the rollout process. Because we've learned, like, if we sell to an engineer, it's not going to happen. At the same time, we're always thinking about how could we make it happen? Like, how can we lighten the product? Is there a way to roll out the product in a light way? I mean, if you think of like three levels, level one is like you have an executive who is 100% committed and on board to making it happen. Level two is you have like a director. Level three is you have like an engineer. In an ideal world, I'd like for DX to work in all three scenarios. But those paths look very different in terms of like the actual process of how you would achieve that. It definitely starts with sales, mapping the entire kind of customer journey from sales to implementation. And we have that conversation directly with our customers. So when we're in the sales process, we're having conversations about what is the best way to roll this out based on who you are. Should we go try to get buy-in from this other person? to help us roll it out in this other way. It was weird at the beginning to be even having these conversations. But when you thought about it, no, like these are people, even if you're talking to an engineer, this is someone who is advocating to have your solution in their company. And part of the value you provide is helping them make that a reality by helping them navigate how they're going to accomplish that in terms of the rollout and adoption. So instead of thinking of it like this insurmountable wall, I think it's good to kind of change it to how can I partner with this person who works at this company, put yourself in their shoes and help them make this successful. Maybe not overnight, but what, like if you were them, how would you do it? So many good insights there. So Abi, I've been excited to ask you this because you've referenced different insights and conversations you've had with different advisor and investors that have helped provide like really critical insights to like the foundation and formulation of your strategy and to think about all of the complicated things and how they intersect. And it sounds like they've provided some really impactful insights at really timely moments. And so I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit more about what has been your experience with different advisors? And I think the big question is, how have you leveraged or managed or maximized those different relationships? You know, in terms of how I kind of approach those relationships in general, I, again, maybe being an engineer a little bit, but I'm, I'm very conservative. Like I have this ledger in my mind. I think of how much capital, like social capital, have I used in the last quarter or month in terms of like asks or time. So I really treat really all our investors, like their time is incredibly precious. I'm really strict about going to them about anything. Of course, there are some investors that I know a little bit better or like have more of a personal relationship that I'm more comfortable going to. What advisors and investors provide more than anything is like a lot of firsthand knowledge. You know, there's a lot of stuff you can read about and hear about, but there's nothing beats kind of that firsthand knowledge being shared. And to be honest, a lot of the times as founders, you're just trying to figure out the way and you need to have a good understanding of the different approaches and different ways things are done in order to make the best decision for yourself. And more than anything, I think that's how we've gotten a lot of value out of our investors is not so much that they've solved a specific problem, but that they've just shared firsthand experience. And I can just give you an example, like, one of our investors is from Atlassian. And Atlassian has such a Atlassian way of doing things that is so different than, you know, another one of our investors who's a leader at uh, the company Immuta, total like enterprise security software. So a lot of the times they kind of give their two cents and they're deeply knowledgeable and they're experts at what they're sharing. But what I think you gain as a founder is, first of all, there's not one way. And second of all, it really helps you 
map those different approaches to what you feel might be best for your business. And I think that's, especially early on when you're trying to figure out go-to market motion or you know product market fit, there's more than one right answer. And so you're really drawing on the, the, the data you're getting from what you're doing and then also some outside influence and perspective. And it's really, you know, so we definitely went to these investors to kind of soundboard. And it wasn't even like they were answering specific questions sometimes, but just hearing the way they thought about their businesses would be so drastically different. That would make you just, it would help you think a little outside the box. And I think more than anything, that's where we've benefited. Now going forward, customer intros, you know, intros to other, you know, new investors or advisors help spreading the word. Those are kind of more practical, tactical things that obviously you can leverage your investors and advisors for. But in terms of those early days being in the trenches, it was really just having sounding boards where, you know, when I think back, a lot of those conversations were pretty unfocused, (laughs) but they were really valuable and they still inform how I think about the business today. I love that so much. I mean, we've we've had a couple of conversations with folks and I think one of the biggest things that has been said in a couple of times on the show is that talk to other founders and talk to other people that are are running these businesses because just the the shared experience of that and then as you said the understanding of different approaches and how people think differently even if that means that's just validating your decision and your approach it can help you think creatively and quickly about that i think that's such great such great advice we've reached out to people who aren't investors or advisors but just operators in different like you were talking about adoption and implementation. We've actively sought out leaders and companies that are not in our space at all, but we felt probably were de- had to confront similar challenges before and learn so much from that. And a lot of it was nothing that would blow your mind, but more just showing you like some of this implementation stuff we talked about. If you had asked me six months ago, I wouldn't have, I would have thought that was preposterous, the things I'm talking about, like having to kind of establish new champions from the outside in after you like from a paying customer. So we've gone and spoken to CS leaders and they're like, no, that's like what you do. We have like a health score and it's like, how many champions have you established at the account? That honestly blew my mind when I heard that, you know, because it's just not something I would have even considered without being like, oh, that's actually what you do. My own observation in terms of how to work with advisors for for the company, a lot of times, uh, I think naturally want to ask questions to advisors. Over time, I realize a better way to leverage their time is to no question, but just to share what do you want to share with us, like your past experiences and story you found unique and valuable. And that just bring up a lot of you know true stories and how you want to make use of those. It's, it's up to you. And sometimes those uh, listed advices are, sometimes we don't know what question to ask. And that's the problem. So I think balance of asking pundit questions versus just getting their broad advice is uh, the combination of two are both valuable. Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, I know we're, we're long on time. We have a couple rapid fire questions if you still have some space available for us. Yeah, sure. All right. So first rapid fire question, what are you reading or listening to right now? I just picked up the book seven powers basically you know there's this age-old question like investors ask you all the time well what what's your moat like what makes your business defensible and this b2b SaaS, like there's some obvious answers like network effects and like that I, I don't know but like for a lot of these businesses i'm like i don't know what the answer is like how do other people answer that question so i hit up one one of our advisors uh, actually lenny uh you know he's a he has that big newsletter and writes a lot and i'm like i think you should write a 
article on this and he said, you should check out this book, Seven Powers. And it's literally about these seven powers of how you build a defensible business. Like what are your kind of unfair advantages over? So I actually just skimmed it really quickly, but it was uh, very, just the skim was really, really helpful in thinking about that. That's great. I think Jerry right now is adding it to his reading list. I can see it happening at the moment. Next question, Abhi, what founder resources have been most helpful for you? It's a great question. I mean, I've been kind of doing the founder thing for a long time. So I'm trying to think my favorite book is not one that is mentioned as much in the space. It's called Nail It Then Scale It. It's very specific to B2B SaaS. But actually, for example, like this whole idea of pre-selling is something they advocate for. So if you've, there's like the Lean Startup, that's like one of the more popular books for kind of methodically getting a startup off the ground. In my opinion, Nail It Then Scale It is, I've read both books and Nail It Then Scale It. You can go see my Amazon reviews if you go to both of those books online. But <laughs> uh, Nail It Then Scale It is is really, really good. And I think it'd be hard for people to go wrong if you stay disciplined to that. And that book talks so much about the founder ethos of falling in love with your own ideas. And it just talks about that so much. And I still do that today. <laughs> you know, that happens all the time. So it's really the biggest risk to getting something off the ground is falling in love with your own idea that's not congruent with reality. So it doesn't work, but you sink so much time and then you're burnt out and you're done. Gosh, two great book reading lists. It's a good thing it's summertime. We got time for reading. So this is perfect. Okay, next next one. How do you diffuse stress? That's a good question. I think I definitely carry quite a bit of stress. Not all stress is bad. I was big into sports like growing up and I'm a big fan of athletes. Like for example, people like Kobe Bryant, I'm very inspired by how they approach their work in terms of kind of being a little bit obsessive, if you will. In terms of stress, I, I don't really do anything. I, I mean, I have to check out once in a while and just get away. And I, I found that first of all, that's so valuable. I need to do that more. Um, you just are able to think clearly when you do step away from a problem. Like you can really mess yourself up by getting so deep into a problem, so deep in the rabbit hole that you just don't think clearly anymore or practically. So I love the outdoors. So big skier and mountain biker, hiker, that sort of thing. But I also I also kind of like to carry the stress a little bit and just like plow through. I was reading something about stress, like top performers, like some top athletes, they were sharing a story about how there was this boxer, I can't remember the name of the boxer, but they would be napping up until about 90 seconds before the the match, the like the boxing match started, because they were able to like drop down to such a calm state and then turn it on really at a really high amplitude. And that that was like one of the markers of a top performer was that like you could jump in and be on at a top level, but you can also drop down to like a really calm state. That's really interesting. Uh, I try to think about that every once in a while, but I think I need to check out every once in a while too. So That's awesome. Last one, Abby. You've shared some great quotes with us. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's resonating with you right now to send us off for the episode? I think the one I shared earlier is still one that is like pretty near to the heart. Just the, you know, if, if you're a pessimist, you'll be right. If you're an optimist, you'll be rich. I mean, that is just so applicable to a lot of things. It's just about kind of faith in general, like being able to move forward in faith, which you need when you're venturing into the unknown. And so uh, I think that that's still a quote I think about often. Actually, that's one of the ways I diffuse stress because I sometimes I, I worry a lot about certain things. And I'm just like, look, I can worry myself to no end. But uh, if you're just optimistic, then things will probably work out. Fantastic. Avi, thank you so much for your time and joining us for an incredible conversation. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. 
Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders. Make sure that you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you know when our first few episodes get released. And if you want to connect with other engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own companies or who've already made the leap, we're building an engineering founders community. We'll be hosting a ton of virtual meetups, sharing resources, and lots of other fun things to support your founder journey. So if you're looking for support, sign up for updates at elc.community. That's elc.comunity. And we'll see you next time.